how can I do something that I can do easily and that I'm interested in doing that, mm -hmm. that somebody else appreciates, like right, putting music online digitally and then when somebody asks, just very much just sharing the files with them um, so that they can now put a Joe Paul song that they remember from when they were a kid on a YouTube video that they're making of them making like a Gutak, you know, like mm -hmm. that's cool to me. Um, and it's like, I'm, I'm doing something simple for me that, that is a service that they appreciate. And then in exchange, I'm getting information. I'm being like, um, I'm being introduced to new music. I'm like, th like the rewards are just like massive when it comes to the, like my interest in this, this local content. That was Jimmy Reardon. He's a multidisciplinary artist and educator who's currently in residence at the Anchorage Museum, digitizing and archiving the work of Yukon Kuskokwim Delta musicians, as well as all the other Alaska music he's collected over the years. He spends a lot of time in thrift stores and going through junk bins and scouring the internet, anywhere old records might exist. When he first started listening to old Alaskan albums and radio programs, he thought he was going to hear a lot of tourist music and songs about things like reindeer and caribou. But he soon realized that there was a lot of diversity in what he was hearing. There was hip-hop, psychedelic rock, metal, punk. He even found a record of sound bites from people talking about their experience during the 1964 earthquake. His motivation is that of a fan, driven by interest and excitement. If he can provide a service that's useful, in exchange for all the information and all the stuff that he's getting, then that's what he's looking to do. His fascination with the music of Joe Paul is a good example. Joe Paul is a country and gospel singer, originally from Kipnuk, Alaska, a community along the Kuskokwim River. And one day, while out digging for Alaskana, Jimmy came across one of his albums, Eskimo songs, stories, and country music. He was floored by it and says that it rejuvenated his interest in collecting. So here he is, Jimmy Reardon. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. The other day when we were talking, I took like two pages of notes. And when I went back to them, I realized that there was a lot about Video City in Anchorage. Um, first off, I'm not sure if I knew that Video City was still in business. That's funny. Yeah, I mean, this has nothing to do with um, my work in, a, in like a specific sense, but because um, for my um, music archiving project, I do spend a lot of time in thrift stores and going through like junk bins and um, kind of scouring the internet and you know, going to basically anywhere I can where I think people might have old records. Um, I kind of became aware that Video City's Muldoon location was still open and that the person that had started Video City back in the day was still operating it and was using it as a space to um, resell old DVDs, you know, VHS, laser discs, and then he has a large amount of old vinyl records that he kind of brings box by box out to the thing. But yeah, my, I mean, there's, 
probably other people that know a lot more about the Video City business, but I know that I think I had been to that spot a little bit more than a week before we had spoken, and um, I had been struck by it. I, it was a really, really interesting space. He was a really cool guy, and it was, yeah, just really energized me to go into that space. Video City used to rent movies back in the day when people would rent physical movies. Didn't it also have a pretty sizable pornography collection? Um, I think so, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like they used to advertise on the radio that they had the largest collection in the state of Alaska. From what I understood, so I didn't know the history of it, but I think they were one of the earliest VHS rental places in Anchorage, and there were locations in a variety of spots, but the owner's policy was really just to buy anything mm-hmm. um, and not to try to um, judge what his customer's taste would be in advance. So if it's like straight to VHS, which was really, really common back in the 80s and early 90s, or if it was like pornography or if it was like cartoons or whatever it was, he would just, it sounds like he would just purchase it. And, you know, just his goal was to have like the largest selection possible as opposed to like a curated selection where he was trying to gauge what um, the interest of his customers was in advance. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I was pretty young when that place was like really in business you know it was a rental store and i remember uh i'm assuming that you know the porno section was the one behind the curtain that i never went into but there was another section the horror section uh that i would always go into because i've always been a pretty big horror fan and so i assume those sections were probably uh similar in the way they looked yeah on the horror section i was into that as a kid too um, and the horror section was pretty spectacular. I know they had all those grotesque, like back, there were those series, I can't remember what they're called, but it was basically home video of, of accidents, you know, horrible things happening to people, like, you know, a car jack falling out from under a car tire. Was or, it Faces it of Death? Leg. Yeah, yeah. So he, that must have been it. He carried those, they carried those, but they also did, they had all the um, sort of B horror movies. Mm-hmm. I remember a friend of mine from high school um, would go, to the various video cities looking for movies that were on, there are these particular video lists called like Video Nasties, which were ones that I think it was the British government had determined were of no redeeming quality. So mm-hmm. obviously as a teenager in Anchorage, you're like, well, I wanna watch everything that has no redeeming quality. <laughs> Do you have one of those Video Nasties that you remember? I'm Not off the top of my head. I feel like they had names like, um, like Mardi Gras Massacre or, um, you know, the. Yeah, there. I don't remember. Like, I think Cannibal Holocaust might have been one of them. But I that wasn't really my thing so much as it was something that I um, that I participated in because I was hanging out at my friend's house. You know, it was I was less like, actively involved in the search and more just passively. Yeah, I'll watch whatever you put on your TV. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know. You know, I. I feel like Alaskans have a really special relationship with video rental stores because there was a time really not that long ago where it could take months before things like new movies and television shows got to Alaska. And those movies and TV shows are kind of what connected us to the lower 48 or maybe even the country as a whole. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I know, I don't know if it's specific to Alaska, but I know that when it came to things like VHS, it used to be that, um, 
the rental places would get them with a significant lead time on when you could get them at the store or when you could order them as an individual. So, um, so in a one sense, like if you wanted to watch something um, close to its release, you had to go to rent it. You couldn't get it any other way. Mm-hmm. And then I also know that, um, you know, before things like the way the internet is now, like um, that the way you like shared popular culture, like subcultures was kind of word of mouth. And it was from, you know, analog media is really easy to bootleg, right? So one person would bootleg a copy of a cassette tape or a, um, a VHS tape and pass it on to another person. And then you'd get a copy of the copy who'd get a copy of a copy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's the same, you know, we're thinking about the same time period, or at least I am as when the zine was a really common um, form of communicating, right? People making fanzines, their own sort of Xerox magazines on various topics. Like if they were interested in, um, certain kind of punk or like metal bands, or if they were interested in, in a certain like political issues, you know, they, they'd be creating their own publications and then those things would be traded and passed around. And yeah, so I think, I don't know if it's, I, Alaska definitely, cause that's where I grew up. I know that it was, it was, there was a really strong culture of that, but I feel like that might've been just, that, that was the way information traveled um, back then in a more general sense. You mentioned zines. Were you into zines and, you know, in addition to that, you, you also mentioned the, the video nasties list and, you know, I'm, I'm connecting with those two things on a personal level because I was always into, you know, obscure things, you know, what, what exists that people don't know about, like generally people don't know about, were you like that as a kid? Maybe I, I see. I don't know. I mean, I was into zines to a degree. I was maybe when I was younger, I was more interested in in comics than zines. Um, and then horror movies, like I said, um, I was it was more of a passive interest. Um, like it was just an interest that people around me had. Um, but I do think that, and this is probably true today too, that when you're younger, like figuring out these sort of niche interests that you have that then maybe you share with other people um, is a great way to identify sort of your, um, your like for lack of a better word, like your clique or your, um, your tribe or, you know, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of this sort of um, tribalism in youth, right? You want, you find your friends, there's these really tight bonds and, and things like fashion, things like what you read, what you listen to, what you watch. Um, I feel like it could be as simple as something like you watch the Simpsons every week when it came out, you know, like that you had this shared um, vocabulary of like the humor of that television show and its reruns, or you're really interested in Star Trek and you, cause I know Anchorage used to have like the little Star Trek conventions would come to the Egan center. So I think it didn't matter what it was, right? Like people were, lo- people on all levels are looking for that thing. I mean, maybe in a really um, sort of generic kind of like, stereotypical way right like maybe you're a cheerleader and a or in a jock or maybe you're a greaser or a you know like yeah <laughs> there's like there you're creating these like these these different identities these different groups to identify with and yeah i don't know i mean i'm sure that's still going on in a way but it, it definitely i'm the technology and like the media of the time i'm sure definitely plays into that there's a great joke right that i think it's a it's either an onion or one of those like harder times articles that the headline is, um, it's something along the lines of like scientific study proves that the best music ever, um, 
happened when you were like 14 or 15. <laughs> it's just like a scientific fact that whatever was being made at that point in time is by far, you know, the best quality objectively, scientifically speaking. And it's like everybody, I feel like everybody believes that, right? For sure. And I think that that's because not only, you know, do you like that type of music and, you know, you were listening to that type of music during like formative years in your life, but you're also connecting that music with certain memories. And so there's that element of nostalgia involved. And so I, I think that those types of things are very hard to replicate. Yeah. I mean, and we're also like in a really, I mean, again, I don't know any, I'm not an expert in like child or like youth psychology and I don't understand, like I don't understand exactly how time works, <laughs> but there's, I get this sense as I get older that like that time is moves faster, right? Like I feel as though not just because of the pandemic, but because of my age, um, the last couple of years have passed faster than, um, than years prior. And that I had that same thought like five years ago that those, that time was passing faster than, um, did time before that. And I can recollect being in my twenties and, you know, two weeks feeling like a very intense amount of time. And I can feel, I can think about like high school or before that and think about even a smaller period of time as feeling significant. So, I mean, I, I think that plays maybe into it too, that like there's an intensity to um, what can happen in a short amount of time at certain ages and, um, and that you can't you just can't replicate that as you get older. Like you can't, you can't form the same sorts of bonds or I don't feel as though you could, I, you know, again, I could be wrong, but from my own personal experience, I feel as though some of the friendships that have come out of my twenties or my teens, um, are not better, but different and mm -hmm. like intense in a different way. Um, yeah. What's interesting, you, you know, you were mentioning, um, kind of what we, what people kind of do or get into, um, in those young ages, like being kind of formative and, like to bring it in a way back to kind of the work I'm doing here with the museum. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that in a really roundabout way, the, um, the work I do archiving local Alaskan music comes out of um, not so much like my musical tastes from my youth or being interested in collecting in a specific way, but like there were, I feel like there was a moment where, and I think it might've come along with when like my first friends started to have cars, um, but where, I started to be aware of thrift stores, right? So I feel like in Anchorage, there used to be lots of thrift stores. And so we would go thrift store shopping um, as a way just to hang out, right? Because you're looking for, especially in the winter, you're looking for spaces to spend time where you don't, you know, you don't inherently have to spend lots of money. So it's like hanging out at the mall or mm -hmm. going and sitting at Denny's with an endless cup of coffee for hours and hours and hours. Or, <laughs> yeah. Um, finding that friend who has a basement that um, is fair game. And I feel like thrift stores kind of fell into that. And at the time, I feel like records at the thrift stores were 25 cents, maybe 50 cents a copy. And so we would get into collecting old records just based on what the cover art was. And I did that um, sort of very regularly, almost like religiously visiting certain spots when I was younger. And I think that's something that is kind of held over and that desire to like occasionally, I'm, you know, I'm not as, um, I don't do it as regularly as I used to, but occasionally going through and flipping through the records at different spots um, is how I started to collect Alaskan music. And it's sort of like the habit that, um, that feeds this 
kind of archival um, sort of completist project. And then it's also like very specifically, I think I went into Tidal Wave and there was a copy of Joe Jim Paul's or Joe Paul, he was going as just by Joe Paul on this one, um, Joe Paul's Eskimo song stories and country music um, for like five bucks. And I picked it up and that album is like the album that really started this project. Like I call the, the project kind of jokingly like the Joe Jim Paul fan club. And it's like, because of that specific record. And the only reason that I listened to that record again, it's because of my like record collecting and my, like my um, fandom or my, me being like a fanboy of this sort of stuff that, that started the project. It's not out of like being interested in, or like educated in like ethnomusicology or being an anthropologist or being like a musician myself or being like a, somebody that has like the sort of like music production skills or interests. It, it really came out of this like this going to thrift shops and looking through old records and then at a certain point saying, I'm going to hold on to every Alaska record that's under a buck, you know, like mm -hmm. I'll just take any, if it's from Alaska under a buck, I'll take it. Even if I already have one, I'll take both copies. And then... Yeah, and then more specifically, again, when it comes to like music from the YK Delta, coming across this one record by Joe Paul and being just kind of floored by it. And yeah, it's like gambling, right? You you play the slots, right? You like flip through the pile of records mm -hmm. and you find nothing most of the time. Some of the time you find like something that's okay. And then once every you know long while, you find something that kind of like blows your mind, that can rejuvenates your interest in in like continuing to play that game. But anyway, um, that's a little, I guess not a tangent, but that, that definitely something that I thought of when you, um, when you were talking about that sort of like formative years, how the, how the things you listen to or you do kind of affect um, who you grow into or like the habits that you have as an adult. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Joe Jim Paul. Can you explain who he is and you know, how he relates to the work that you're doing with the museum? Yeah, for sure. So, um, Joe Paul or Joe Jim Paul, he, I think it was really only his last record, as far as I can tell, that he went by Joe Jim Paul. Mm -hmm. But Joe Paul is a um, country and gospel artist, um, originally from Kipnik, Alaska, on the Kuskokwim River, like, at, I mean, in the Bethel area. And he lived in Bethel for a while. I think for a period there, he actually worked for the Bethel radio station, KYUK. And he was blind. The stories go that he, like, maybe made his own first guitar using electrical wires. I don't know how true that is. Um, but there's all sorts of interesting stories about him from um, that I've heard from people that knew him. Um, I think like he was able to drive a boat, like operate a boat up the Kuskokwim River on his own, even though he was blind, like he could hear the depth of the water, like he understood where the, the shore was. And so he, for a period in the, I, th I think it was mostly in the, um, sort of late 70s into the 80s um, recorded a bunch of these gospel and then later sort of like gospel and country music and then some like Yupik language um, vinyl records. And from what I understand, you know, he'd, so he'd record these maybe even at KYUK and then he'd send the recordings out. Um, I'm pretty sure that all of his records were pressed at this place called Angelus Records in California, which was like a little record pressing shop attached to the backside of like a church. And so he'd send them out to there. They put like mostly generic artwork on the front, 
the track listing, and then send these albums back to Bethel, and he'd sell them in front of the AC, like the grocery store. Um, or they'd be kind of sold at shows or sold um, kind of word of mouth. And there's about seven records he put out, and then he died in the late 80s, and um, the KYUK under Peter Twitchell's leadership um, put out a collection of his work, and the Alaska Native Language Center has put out, like in the early 2000s, um, a small CD collection of his work. But anyway, but um, he's just he's a really interesting musician. And, and early on, he was doing records that were um, one side would be in the English language, and one side would be um, completely in the Yupik language. Um, and he was composing his own songs. He was covering songs. He was doing a lot of gospel early on, but kind of moved into some more country. And um, so he, as far as he relates to this project, like I said, finding that record and listening to it is what kind of got me to start thinking about the Alaska music I was collecting um, as something that was maybe worth more energy, worth more than just like putting in a box, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, it's the Alaska Polka Dots record again. Like, I'm going to buy a copy of this, stick it in the box with the other, like, <laughs> kil kil you know, it's like the Kilcher records or, you know, the, the stuff that's more common, um, Joanne and Monty, you know, those things were just kind of collecting dust. But that record got me to start thinking about um, more actively kind of looking for information about specific artists. And, mm -hmm. and it also coincidentally corresponded with the beginning of, of a period of time where I started doing more work. Um, as an artist in Bethel and in certain smaller communities in the YK Delta and started to build relationships with, you know, the Bethel Library and KYUK radio station. And so I was also in a place where I could share what I found, give it to people that knew a lot more than me, like help get music that had maybe been lost back onto the local radio station, um, talk to people that that maybe knew more information about people like Joe Paul, but also that would appreciate the digitizing and the, um, the sharing of that music, you know, because um, again, they just had, that's again, why I think of this as like a fan club sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I have this, I have this, this effort that I'm putting in, but I have like such a lack of knowledge, right? Like anybody that's been a part of like the gospel scene in Bethel or in that area knows a hundred times more than me about every one of these artists. Every time I quote unquote discover a musician and start figuring out stuff about them, I bump into somebody a day later that already knows everything I knew. Mm -hmm. And and so it's kind of funny. Um, but I've got the time where I've decided to take the time to do this digitizing. And so I, yeah, I see it more as like, I'm doing this sort of like fanboy service <laughs> to these people that I'm like geeking out about. Um, but yeah, so that's that's kind of how it connects. And so what I'm doing for the museum is that I have a fellowship um, through their archive, you know, the library, like the um, Northern Research Center, and I'm working over in the Seed Lab, and I'm um, digitizing and archiving these YK Delta musicians, but also in a general, more general sense, like the um, all the Alaska music that I have collected over the years. So it's involving you know, creating spreadsheets and catalog numbers and talking to the archivists about like how best to organize things. Um, it's photographing the album artwork, um, creating like all these embedded folders of like the artists albums, um, the artwork, the digitized full length albums, and then eventually like titling and like track breaking, um, or, like breaking all these albums into tracks. Um, mm -hmm. And 
yeah, and so that's the work I'm doing here, and it's been great because the museum then gives me access to space where I can keep um, my little photo stand set up, and I can have the setup for the digitizing um, very accessible. Um, I don't have to set it up every time I want to do it, which would be how it would be in my house, especially now with this little newborn kicking around. So, I mean, they'd all get destroyed probably, but um, <laughs> but yeah. So that's that's the work I'm doing, and that's how it kind of connects to this. But Joe, that that um, Joe Paul record is was the um, definitely the spark that kind of like turned whatever this was that I was doing into like a full-fledged um, project. Mm -hmm. These conversations you have with people who knew Joe Paul, what do those look like? I mean, they really depend on the person, right? So um, it can be like simple anecdotes. It can be, I know I met a man that moved to Bethel in the 70s, Tim Miller, and he talked about how Joe and his wife Natalie saw him like wandering down the street at um, kind of like disheveled, completely out of place, didn't know, you know, really didn't probably know what he was doing. Um, moving to Bethel, I think it was in the middle of the winter or something, and um, I might be getting that wrong. But in any case, they invited him in to, um, to eat at their house, and they like kind of helped him out early on in his time there. I mean, again, there's these stories about him driving the boat or these stories about him mm -hmm. um, building this guitar. There's these, um, those sorts of things. There's people talking about him teaching them to play guitar. Um, so, I mean, it's the same way, like depending on who you talk to, it could just be as simple as, hey, I remember listening to these songs when I was younger, or I remember seeing Joe Paul perform when I was younger. Um, I see that you've digitized this stuff. Can I have copies to listen to? You know, mm -hmm. that could, the conversations could be like that. But even a conversation like that can be really fruitful, right? Like I know there was this um, woman that I had been communicating with about things like that, just sharing music. Um, and her brother is married to Joe Paul's, I think it's her, his daughter. Um, and then she eventually came along, um, she was eventually in conversation with this relative Joe Paul's and was given records of his and you know all but one of them were things that we had already digitized but one of them was what looked like the, maybe the test pressing of his first record which we'd heard a couple songs on the Alaska Native Language Center collection but had never seen the full album and she allowed me to borrow it and digitize it and then you know I gave her a copy of the digitized thing and you know she had just gotten these records and didn't have a turntable so I was able to give her one of the old turntables that we've been kind of hoarding for the project and so there's these some of it is less about like anecdotes and stories and more about like this exchanging of information um, and yeah it's been it's been a lot of that I mean one of the cool things that's been happening more recently is that KYUK has been doing its own massive archival project for the last few years. They've got some grants and they've dedicated some workers and I think they're working with Summit Day Media in Anchorage to archive the their um, entire video and audio collection. And I'm pretty sure they've been starting with the VHS and the video part of it um, and they'll work their way towards the audio and just, I'm. God, probably hundreds of thousands of hours. I mean, I don't. Mm -hmm. It's just an, an immense amount of media. Um, and as part of it, they started digitizing these things, these um, fundraiser videos from the '80s. And these fundraiser videos had all sorts of different little skits, but they included these local talent segments where local musicians 
would perform live uh, one or two songs for uh, like a live studio audience. And we found the first video of, of a single song um, down in Alaska Valley, Joe Paul was performing. It's the first video I've seen of him performing um, in that collection, um, which is pretty cool. But we also found you know, there's a pretty well-known um, artist from Tanunik, um, John and Gayek. You know, there's a bunch of live video of John playing his original songs, which is also spectacular. And other, there are a lot of other musicians, the Henry Shavings family, and um, people just there's cool stuff of people that are just like passing through, right? Like mm -hmm. KYUK employees or other employees around the city that maybe moved up from out of state that are really talented at like the oboe, you know, doing these live performances. Um, so anyway, so there's like this gold mine of stuff there. And there's other things like in conversations about helping people digitize their old tapes while I'm in Bethel. Um, we've gotten in touch with people that had given their tape collection to the local religious radio station, the Christian radio station, and they were you know, giving me like three or four shopping bags of home recorded cassette tapes. And some of them are um, just straight off the radio, maybe like 90s popular music, but some of them are recordings of the KYUK gospel show from the 80s and the recordings of local musicians that um, these recordings no longer exist in the collection of the radio station. So, um, we're finding copies of music that KYUK no longer has on tapes that people recorded off the radio while listening to KYUK in the 80s, which is like kind of wild to all of a sudden be like, oh yeah, we have now twice as many songs by um, John Alexi because this person's home recording. And some of them, you know, people would record these tapes of themselves talking and singing and, and then mail them to their relatives. Um, and so some of them are these really personal things. And you know, obviously when we're digitizing stuff for other people, we're not gonna like take everything of theirs and put it into this archive. Um, we, we take what they will let us. We'll, we sort of do the volunteer archiving um, as a service that doesn't um, necessarily mean that they have to um, contribute everything that was in it, right? Like if something's personal, um, then it's theirs mm -hmm. because we don't have any sort of ownership. But anyway, so that's been really interesting because the conversations lead to other conversations and like, um, and it often leads to more um, information and more material. Is there something going on upstairs? I don't know. Can you hear? Yeah, something? it sounds like cheering. <laughs> Maybe I'm tucked away. I hopefully it's not too loud. I, I'm in. I'm tucked away in a little room. Um, off from my studio and there's nobody in my studio or in the room attached but if you're hearing people then there might be people downstairs too you know like the the building's first floor is often used for okay yeah is it is it too loud i don't know where no 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 i i always just uh i'm always interested and i'm i'm a fan of like um background noises yeah. in in podcasts or in audio because it it continues to make, you know, this conversation between you and I even more unique, you know, because of that confluence of sounds. Oh yeah. I mean, I think these days with the way that we do these interviews over the phone or like the, um, the way that people do like broadcasting from like these, you know, I feel like you hear on the radio all the time, people talking about 
they're in their quote unquote recording studio in their closet yeah. hiding from their children <laughs> and pets. I feel like it's kind of an interesting byproduct of the COVID time is that we've, we've really um, relaxed when it comes to um, everything being perfect, perfect, perfect. You know, something that, that I wanted to ask you is you said that, you know, you, you saw Joe Paul in a video, you know, you saw him for the first time. What was that like? I mean, find that video, um, being shown that video, um, was really awesome. I mean, again, like I said before, there, uh, this, all of this is a little bit like playing the slot machines or something, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a lot of this sort of rote behavior that, um, that is worthwhile, but maybe doesn't have like immediate rewards or, um, or it doesn't have like, you know, some of the stuff I'm digitizing is maybe not stuff that I'm super interested in listening to, but I think that digitizing it is still worthwhile. And so then when you come across things, be it like this video where it's an artist that I'm very interested in, and all of a sudden it's the first time I've seen live video of him. I've seen photographs of, the art of him before, but I'd never seen video. It's really, really cool. And I want to share it with everybody that I know that might be interested. Um, and it is a funny video. It's him feel like it's kind of a close up of him and he's in front of some sort of tapestry or something that's hanging behind him that they're probably just using to block out the background. And he's under like the stage lights and his sunglasses and he's introducing the song and then playing um, it. And he's like laughing, at, he's laughing at the lyrics at certain points. <laughs> you know, he's like, I think there's a point where he's like singing about drinking gasoline instead of coffee, you know? Um, and he's just laughing. Um, and so it is fun. I mean, that's the same thing with this artist, um, John Alexi, right? There's a, we had found a few songs of his and he was an interesting character. They used to call him like the, the cowboy John Alexi and he'd play a bunch of gospel, but he'd also sometimes slip in these country songs. And this may be an exaggeration, but I feel like I've been told that he would show up to shows with like a cowboy hat and like, you know, um, these sort of like faux six shooters on his like holster, you know, think he kind of would ham it up and, mm -hmm. um, and so he was an artist whose voice I really liked and the way he played the guitar I really liked. All the songs were these covers, but they'd be these covers of like Hank Williams songs and things like that. Um, and so I'd heard maybe four songs of his and then all of a sudden there's a few live videos of him playing as a sort of an older man, but um, it's still the same voice. Um, and it was really, really awesome to, to stumble across those. There's also, um, in talking about him, one thing that's really cool that we're hoping to do in the future is that he lives, um, oh man, the village name is, maybe it's Atmo. Um, he lives in a village not too far out of Bethel. Um, he's pretty old these days. And there's a chance that he would like to record some new music. And so there's the hope to maybe work with KYUK, maybe work with the museum to get some people that um, have the skill to um, do that mm -hmm. um, in a sort of like as non-intrusive of a way like in his home. So maybe, you know, sleep in the school um, library floor and and go to his house during the day for a little bit here and there record a, some real like kind of not lo-fi like well-recorded but um mm -hmm. but songs without like a bunch of instrumentation right like where the the maybe the casio keyboards left in the closet and um and yeah because it'd be so cool to add to the music that um yeah that kind of makes up this because there's a really rich history, right? Like I said, I don't, I, I just know the tip of the iceberg. And if you talk to anybody that's been a part of this, this sort of like gospel or even this more general music scene in the YK Delta, there's a really, really, really rich history made up of like 
many, 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 many like, really compelling characters. And so, yeah, being able to contribute just a little bit to it is, um, feels really rewarding. Mm -hmm. So earlier you were talking about actually seeing some of these vinyl sleeves. Am I remembering that correctly? Which, which ones the, I think it might've been Joe Paul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do. So we have, um, found about like one, two, maybe five out of seven of his recordings. Um, we've found copies of the records. Mm -hmm. Um, one of them is this one that Davina has that it was in a blank sleeve because I think it was a, again, a test pressing. It had this Alaska airlines, um, like 1970s Alaska airlines, like air freight sticker on it. Um, but the other ones, they all do have album art. The funny thing is, though, so when he sends the, um, the albums out to get pressed, um, the thing that would typically happen at these places that would press like tons and tons of records for people, like so as a sort of a tangent, but um, there are lots and lots of records of local Alaskan high schools and junior high bands and orchestras and like show choirs okay. doing performances that have been then, were then sent to these places sort of the same way that you would send um, stuff out for a yearbook, you know, to print a certain number of copies to send back. They had the same sort of operations around the country where you'd send that stuff out and they'd make a record and they'd send a bunch of copies back to give to, to sell to all the parents. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And it's the same sort of places um, that people like Joe Paul would send their recordings to. And as part of the process, more often than not, you wouldn't send like a photograph or your own album artwork you would choose from some stock records, right? So okay. there are like hundreds and hundreds of records around the country that all have the same album artwork, right? But one of them might be some um, community choir in Sitka. One of them might be a high school band in Minnesota, you know, but they all looked exactly the same. And, um, and so a lot of the album artwork on, especially on the earlier records, by people like Joe Paul or Henry Shavings that were sending stuff to labels like Knopf and um, Angelus, Angelus being the one that um, Joe Paul was releasing stuff on. They have these super generic, not at all Alaskan artwork on the cover. You know, mm -hmm. it's like these like out of copyright paintings of like stormy seas or these like <laughs> these like billowing hills that look like they're probably Ireland or maybe some of them it looks like it's Hawaii. Um, and so they would, you know, it's just generic artwork. I know one of the Joe Paul ones is, is it's this real generic um, kind of stock illustration of a guitar. Um, and then later on, they start having pictures of the artists on them and some of the releases, um, you know, they'll have a picture of them. And the album artwork can be like digitizing the album artwork is really worthwhile because the album artwork itself can be as compelling as the music. I mean, there's some of these ones. There's one from Henry Shaving's from the the Henry Shavings family trio that it's got him and his wife in these beautiful parkas this gorgeous photograph of them really young like with their musical instruments like just standing there mm -hmm. and it's really cool and some of theirs like thinking about Hawaii some of theirs I guess they would take trips to Hawaii and so a couple of their albums have pictures of them all done up in their like summer gear like their floral shirts and stuff standing in like these real tropical backgrounds because <laughs> mm -hmm. um, if you're going to put artwork on there might as well be something that if you're selling this to people around alaska it's like look at this we had this great trip yeah um so 
But the, yeah, the artwork can be really, really, really interesting. Um, those albums with the original artwork, what's it like holding that and seeing that in person? And this question comes from, you know, we were talking about being um, fans of horror movies earlier, or maybe even just fans of movies. And that in relation to rental stores, you know, movie rental stores, I personally know that you know, when I was younger and even to this day when it's an option, I love going into movie stores and seeing that original artwork. You know, I remember going to like Blockbuster in the 90s and seeing all of those. Um, I mean, it's it's artwork. It's not a photo, you know, on these these old horror movies. And it's such a. uh I mean, it's such a great experience to, to hold that and to feel that and to turn it around and to be able to look at, you know, everyone that was involved in the production and to read the synopsis. Yeah. I mean, I'm obviously, I mean, I, as a kind of a hoarder of things, as a collector of vinyl records beyond just this Alaska project, you know, I, the other, one of the other projects I'm working on is this local like Alaska bookmobile. So I'm getting all these used weird books in that I then try to give out for free. Um, so like old fifties sci-fi magazines, anything mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in, in the artwork side of it. So in a, in a very personal way, I don't, I mean, I don't know what the impact would be for anybody else, but for me, yeah, I really love looking at the artwork. Sometimes I sit and look at the artwork and don't even listen to the records. And a lot of the books that the bookmobile passes through, I've, you know, I've never read them, but I've, I've looked at the covers, you know, 20, 30 times. Um, yeah, I mean, my background, so as an artist, I come from like a visual arts background. As a kid, I was really interested in drawing um, and then, you know, later on sort of painting and stuff, less photography, definitely not like sound or video. Um, and so when I was um, younger and I started thinking about kind of engaging more professionally with the arts, I, I started really getting involved in like illustration and printmaking and then bookbinding. And, um, and so like the, the package, the way something is presented, the, mm -hmm. like the illustrations, the, the like design and like the artistry of, of like the object, um, is something that is really, 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 um, compelling to me. And so for that reason, yeah, I mean, I, I really, really appreciate the artwork. I, um, I have a lot of respect for it and I, um, and it is one of the things that, you know, I'll, I'll look at a record and it could take me a, a long while to, to end up actually digitizing something for it to be like in the queue to be digitized, but I'll spend some time looking at it. I'll read everything on it. I might look up more information about it. I'll probably like take a photograph of it, um, before I get around to putting it on the turntable. So yeah, the artwork is, is really important to me.
what does collecting books for the bookmobile look like? Oh, so, so again, so my background is in printmaking and bookbinding, some illustration. And I lived in Pittsburgh for a while um, and moved back up here in 2018, I think. And, um, and then about a year later needed to figure out how to move my printing equipment from Pittsburgh if I, or sell it. And so um, I, I was looking for a vehicle to drive um, up the Alcan with my printing equipment. And I found that there was this um, proper bookmobile from the Allegheny Library Association that was retiring after 20 years. And it was like the most affordable, best maintained vehicle um, that could also carry this equipment. Mm -hmm. And so I drove that up the Alcan with the printing equipment. And by the time I got to Anchorage, kind of decided to keep it around as a mobile venue. So we do like drive-in movies and um, we are trying to power pop-up um, sort of performance events and um, we're getting into some like youth arts education stuff. But as a bookmobile, right, when you when you have the word bookmobile plastered all over yeah. your vehicle and if, you know, it was built out like a sailboat, the inside's all nice wood, it's, it's gorgeous um, and it's all these bookshelves. So when you've got bookshelves in your venue, you're going to fill them. And early on, you know, people see bookmobile, they want to give you books. I think we were in a campground maybe only a few days into driving back up to Alaska and somebody had already like left a stack of three or four books on the hood that they had been maybe reading on their road trip that, that they wanted to contribute. And I get calls, you know, this woman contacted me through Facebook about these boxes and boxes of books she had up in McGrath that she couldn't find anybody in McGrath to take. And she wanted to pay the shipping to send crates of books down. And if I didn't respond in a couple of days, they were going in the incinerator, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and so like these, these old sci-fi books are that way, but so people donate all sorts of different things. So diff some people will give you their collections and it'll be all these old graphic novels or um, some people it'll be their kids, young adult and, um, and, children's books. I mean, the one of them that had these children's books, it was amazing. It, it also included all the 90s scholastic posters okay. that they had gotten for free at like the school book sales. Mm -hmm. right? So there's one of, of um, Shaquille O'Neal as, I think it's Shazam. Um, the, he, was, he played like a, a genie that came out of a boombox in some movie. And it's, it's him as this genie character um, saying some slogan, some clever slogan about why, how reading is cool, right? Um, we've got another poster that's, you know, of um, Patrick Stewart, like Jean-Luc Picard as with a book of Shakespeare talking about how like discover, you know, different worlds through reading. And, you know, some of these classic ones, they're like pictures of kittens, but things like that just kind of pass through. And so then I'm actively trying to move those books on because I don't want to keep all this stuff. Um, I just don't have the space. And, mm -hmm. um, but there are certain things, especially like old sci-fi that have these amazing painted covers that it's, I, it's worth looking at for a long time and taking pictures of, even if I don't read the content inside. Um, there's these old conspiracy theory magazines from the 60s and 70s, back, to, back as early as the 50s. There's one that's talking about like sort of the voodoo qualities of the hula dance or um, like um, back when... Um, conspiracy theories were still fun, you know, like they didn't have to do with the government. It was all like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster mm -hmm. and UFOs, um, like these sorts of magazines, which the covers and the headlines are really worth um, kind of scouring over and spending some time with. But do I really need to read the articles? I don't know. Um, 
so yeah, so um, the the Bookmobile library is kind of this um, free library where I'm processing through donated material. Um, I sometimes reach out, like we'll get some grants every so often to purchase content that we specifically want. And I sometimes reach out to um, artists, like self-publishing artists and stuff that I'm interested in to try to get copies of their content to have on there and some local people. And we've been doing this thing where like if the books are in really good shape and they're not the sort of books that we feel like the bookmobile can pass on, we'll take them to Tidal Wave and exchange them for credit so that we can later use that credit to get specific books the bookmobile might want. Like um, I know there's this um, professor at APU that would like to read through the entirety of Metamorphosis by Kafka mm-hmm. in one sitting at like a farmer's market or the museum lunch in the lawn or something along that. And it would be nice to have credit to pick up every copy of Metamorphosis Tidal Wave has so that anybody that comes by can just grab a free copy of the book. So if they're listening to him read, they can then go home and read more of it if they'd like. So yeah, so that's kind of what the library is like. It's, it's, we joke, it's, you know, there's those little free libraries where it's like a big free library. Have you encountered any recent books or maybe just in general where, you know, it's taking you aback where you're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool to be able to hold this. Books? Um, yeah, I mean, there are great books. Um, and I just had a kid recently and, um, you know, you're supposed to start reading to him, I was told, as, as early as like, I mean, right away, but as early as three or four weeks, even though they can't understand what you're doing, like saying, like Mm -hmm. reading to a child is supposedly as important as talking to them. Like the way that you sound when you read is different. And, and I guess that has an importance in and of itself. But so I've been, um, been looking at kids books, like children's picture books and the printing quality and some of the artwork and the stories in, um, these, some of these newer children's books and some older children's books, but um, I've been noticing more recently, the newer ones is really, really beautiful. I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering the name of the book or the, the author, but there's this one recently we found that are these gorgeous, very like old timey looking illustrations of these sort of anthropomorphized peasant rabbits. And that the story is this, this dad and this, his kid or um, want to see what's on the other side of this forest. And, so the dad like grows wheat and he, um, so he like processes the wheat and starts baking bread and he's like selling the bread for rocks and they're using the rocks to build a tower so they can look over and see what's on the other side of the forest. And it's one of those stories about like the whole community getting together to finish this project. But the illustrations are spectacular. And, and again, as a printmaker and as somebody that, that kind of designs things for printing, um, I'm really interested in like the ways different print technology processes imagery. So like looking at older books that were done using offset lithography and the ways in which they think of creative ways to mix colors so that they're using less plates, less layers Mm -hmm. of color, right? So instead of using like five colors, they're using two, but they're getting these really interesting effects or the way that they'll have like single color pages followed by full color pages. You know, that's really, I think Goodnight Moon is a great example of that. Like it's really, really fun to kind of look through and, and see how the printing styles affect the appearance of the work. I mean, I guess on the other hand, like some of the local work by local artists that I've seen you know, we, the Bookmobile and I have been a part of the Anchorage Zine Fair for the last few years. So seeing the stuff that local artists are publishing and helping people maybe produce zines and artist books and comics, 
um, it's really cool to hold in your hands the stuff that people are producing um, and like kind of get that little glimpse into their into their brain how their mind works you know I just love this image of you driving the bookmobile down the Alcan. Did you have any issues driving it through the Alcan or did everything go as planned? Oh, I mean, we had, I mean, we didn't have any serious issues. We definitely had issues. So the first thing was like Pittsburgh, when we left, Pittsburgh is very much like a windy old, um, it's not quite the East Coast anymore, but it's still kind of East Coast city. So, and it's, really hilly it's like i feel like it's hillier than san francisco it has more bridges than any other city in the world pittsburgh is it's a ridiculous city and so learning to drive or, or driving this like 23 24 foot bus for the first time on these skinny little pittsburgh's like cobblestone streets um was terrifying um, <laughs> <laughs> that was an issue like i mean the first day i picked up the bus and i had to drive it through these construction zones to get to this tire shop so they could replace my um, front tires because I wouldn't even make it to Cleveland on the tires that were originally on it. Um, so there was that it was a little bit treacherous. And then from there till we got to Seattle, cause I did it in two legs. I went with my friend Nina, um, for, from Pittsburgh to Seattle. And then from Seattle up, I went with my friend Chris, um, from Maine and, um, and then on the way up, up the, Al the actual Alcan leg, we had a few kind of like funny parts, like the first night in Canada, we stayed at this a small little resort, kind of wealthy resort town on the side of this lake that had hot springs and stuff that was kind of Bigfoot themed mm -hmm. um, right inside British Columbia. And we were leaving and we kind of didn't want to backtrack too much. And we were looking at the map and we had determined that there was this small road that would kind of cut up and hit where we wanted to be without backtracking. So we started taking this, driving down this road that we thought was that road that was kind of the frontage road around the lake. And that road kept getting more and more um, kind of rocky and unkept and bumpy and skinny. And it was going up these hills and down these hills. And then after a little while, we started realizing the only people that were passing us were in four wheelers and dirt bikes. <laughs> <laughs> and we like re-looked at our map and we're like, you know, I think we're, I think we're following some sort of like recreational trail along the side of the lake i don't think we're on the road we think we're on so we had to like turn all the way around and back back out and then we realized that we just misread the map and we had to actually go like three miles out of town to catch the road that we really wanted to be on that would then you know avoid us backtracking so that was terrifying doing these like crazy turns maybe like 10 point turn you know to like get the bus to turn around on this on this like four-wheeler track and then um and then a couple days in so they told us when I left Pittsburgh, they had said that the rear tires were good enough to get us to Alaska. And what they really meant was the rear tires were good enough to get us a few thousand miles, you know, mm -hmm. but um, they didn't quite gauge how far Alaska was. So we had one of the rear tires go out um, and there's four tires, right? So it was a loud noise, but we were still able to drive on it. And so the next town we stopped and we got the rear tires replaced um, at this local tire shop. So that could have been disastrous, but wasn't. Um, this sensor that like this little like um, sensor that has something to do with the parking brake um, got jiggled loose. So there was this period where like there was all this beeping that was corresponded with a brake light. And it was terrifying because we thought maybe we were, were going to lose our brakes. Um, but it ended up that it was just dirt roads and shooken a sensor loose. 
the second half of the muffler got knocked off while we were doing like the top of the world highway because we went up to Dawson City and then took the ferry across and did top of the world down through chicken before getting to toke. And so that was a really bumpy, hilly road. And I know we lost half the muffler um, there. <laughs> but again, none of these things were horrible, right? The bus ran perfectly, never had a problem starting. Um, we made it all in the exact amount of time we intended to make it. We had no extra stops. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, there were definitely these moments where you're like, oh, was this a smart idea to drive like a 20-year-old school bus, basically, up the <laughs> <Alcan?"> um, <laughs> Yeah, just an incredible image. Yeah, there's some good pictures. One of the best, so there's, I think his name was Chuck. When I was talking to the library about purchasing the bookmobile, um, they put me in touch with the mechanic that had been ma maintaining it because they've got a fleet of bookmobiles that every 20 years, one retires and they replace it with a new one. And it doesn't matter what the condition is. It's just like kind of built into the budget. And so Chuck's the one that maintains those bookmobiles. And so I talked to Chuck a bunch about buying it and then he's the one that took it off of um, craigslist or whatever so that i could um could pick it up and he was super stoked about the bookmobile going to alaska and then later was even more stoked that i wasn't going to just turn it into a camper or food truck mm -hmm. um, and so we were sending chuck pictures of the bookmobile at various points along the highway and up the alcan um, because to him i mean he'd never been to alaska mm -hmm. and he's growing up in western pennsylvania and he's seen this bus that I think that particular bus was one of the first ones purchased after his, he was hired. So it was like one of the first ones to retire that he had maintained for its entire life, um, which was also kind of sweet. Like the day I showed up to pick it up, he was already there early in the morning and he's like topping off all the fluids. And, and you know, I, I kind of imagined, I you know, didn't see it in the rearview mirror, but I imagined that as I drove off, he was crying, you know could see his friend go away. <laughs> a, you know, he was a really, he was really dedicated. He was a really amazing guy. Um, but in any case, so like sending him pictures of, of the bookmobile in front of these massive mountains in Canada or like driving by um, Buffalo or, you know, just, I, that was, that was fun to share. Mm -hmm. Getting back to you collecting things. Do you feel like maybe you're a little bit of a hoarder? Oh, for sure. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think, so I've moved a lot in my life. I, I left Alaska. I was born and raised in Anchorage. I left Alaska right out of high school. Um, I didn't move back for, it was probably, yeah, it was about 10 years I was away. And then my partner and I were up here for, in Anchorage for three years maybe, and then moved to Homer for a little bit. And then, and we were a couple different houses in Anchorage. And then we were down in Vermont and then, Pennsylvania. And so I've moved a lot and I really feel as though, um, the regular moving is what's really helped prevent the hoarding from being a real issue. Cause you only hold on to really specific things when you're moving every, every couple years. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm not doing that anymore. My partner and I bought a house recently and the bookmobile is actually like acquiring some land for storage. And so this idea of being a hoarder does make me a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the last studio I had in Anchorage, um, I had had for three years and I finally had to move out of it this last winter. And I had started to use this office at the museum seed lab, um, you know, about six months prior to moving out of my space in Spinard. And it was funny, like getting the stuff out of Spinard 
over here and trying to figure out how to make things fit and finding the stuff where I'm like, why do I have a file cabinet drawer full of paint rollers and paint trays? I'm like, <laughs> like these should be in my shed with the stuff that we use to paint the house. Like, cause these have been here for three years and I've bought this same material three or four times on different projects because this is not where it should be, you know, like that sort of recording and just like putting things in different little like nick, like nooks and crannies. I definitely have that tendency and I'm definitely working on it. Um, but with things like the records, I feel like it's very justified and, and getting like the affirmation of, of places like the museum's archive saying, yeah, well, mm -hmm. what you're doing is important. You should keep doing that makes me, you know, they, they're emboldening that, that, um, hoarding um, <laughs> habit, <laughs> but maybe with that though, like certain things, certain things I gotta like, let go, you know, a good one. This is completely unrelated to art, but so I was living in New York for a while and I had this studio space and, um, and then kind of with short notice, I moved to London for a bit and I had to move out of my studio. And so I got rid of all this stuff and I packed up things and I sent some stuff to my family and I um, sent some stuff, you know, with me to London and then I gave things away. And then there were like a few boxes and totes that had tucked away in various friends' houses and basements. And so mm -hmm. my friend Jacob's sister and her husband had bought like this brownstone and Clinton Hill and they had newly bought a place and they had some space. So I tucked a few like milk crates of what of stuff that I was holding onto down there. And then maybe four years later, I finally got it back from them. And the box had like, it had boxes of screws and nails and like it, the stuff in it was completely replaceable, completely <laughs> disposable. Like there was nothing in it that was of any value. You know, like it was really funny. There was like an unopened beer in it. <laughs> It was a kind of a nice beer, but like should have just drank it or like somebody should have consumed it in the last four years instead of it yeah. sitting in this like humid, like warm, yeah, New York basement. So yeah, so the hoarding thing, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm aware. Um, my, par <laughs> my partner, Lindsay's aware. <laughs> what does she say? You know, as long as it doesn't happen too much at the house. That's why I have to have these other spaces. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm looking right now because again, with the bookmobile getting some land, I'm looking right now at like a 40 foot, um, basically like a Connex. It's a storage trailer. I'm like, Ooh, 40 foot by eight foot storage trailer. <laughs> <laughs> you can fit a lot of stuff in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you're collecting, you know, pieces of audio, when you're listening to these old Alaska radio programs, what kind of stuff are they talking about? It's really varied. Like, I think at first I thought a lot of stuff would be, or that I'd kind of know what I was going to stumble upon. That's going to be the very Alaskana. I mean, cause there is this thing in a, in a general way, um, for better or for worse, I often for better, but like, um, if somebody was going to release something on vinyl back in like the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, the investment in getting it recorded with like what the recording technology was at the time and getting those tapes sent out and pressed and the, the records made and shipped back up was it, it was a really big investment, right? So it was a little different than people releasing stuff on like Bandcamp or um, putting their music up on Spotify. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's there's these huge benefits to the way it is now that anybody can put out anything. But there was this thing where like, um, there are these certain hurdles that um, made it so there's a, a more manageable amount of stuff to, to 
kind of parse through, right? Because mm-hmm. um, people had to like determine that it was a, a certain value. Um, that said, I don't think that meant that there was a, that meant quality, right? Like that, that could also just mean that you had the money, right? That, like that maybe your family has the money or you raise the money or, you know, that, that it, it didn't have to do specifically with quality. But anyway, so I think I thought at first that because of things like that, that everything would be sort of like tourist related, right? If you have to get the money together to do a record, um, that you're probably going to sing songs about moose and bears in Alaska and, or you're going to try to like do these things that are, um, that you see as like very Alaskan and very marketable. And there was some of that stuff. Like there's these old fifties, 45s that are all these kind of rockabilly songs about like reindeer caribou, you know, um, stuff like that. Um, but then the reality is that the, the, the diversity of stuff is, is spectacular. I mean, there's, there are, when you're talking about like radio shows, there's whole radio series of different interviews or even just like sound bites of Alaska. There's one that was made just months after the Good Friday earthquake. That's all it is, is really short tidbits of different people talking about their experience of the earthquake, a full record of that. That's really beautiful. There's um, stuff that was released by poets. There's stuff that was released by like, you know, the National Bank of Anchorage put out like promotional records. There's, um, and then when it comes to music, you know, it's not just this sort of like Alaskana stuff. There's hip hop music. There's, mm-hmm. um, you know, this band Windflower that in the seventies put out like a psychedelic rock album. They're like from the Baha'i church, they put out this like Baha'i church psychedelic rock album. There's, um, there's metal bands and, um, and there's, was a really vibrant punk scene in Anchorage in the eighties that was putting out stuff like the anemic boyfriends was this sort of, I think they were teenage, um, girl punk band that put out these seven inches with wonderful songs. Like there's this one called guys are not proud. It's sort of this little bit sky trumpety, um, really basic punk band, like punk song about how basically, I mean, the gist of it is that men will sleep with anything. You know, like even okay. a, even a sheep. You know, <laughs> and there's this band, the Klingons, that was putting out some fun stuff, or Skate Death, or the Psychedelic Skeletons, and they were all putting out these these um, vinyl records. And I know, like the Klingons, one of the members of the Klingons, he had this amazing zine um, that he was putting out that was like a punk zine where it had like a lot of local stuff, but it also had um, a ton of interviews with this sort of prominent punk bands at the time. I feel like the Dead Kennedys and like the Circle Jerks and things like that were, um, mm-hmm. they had interviews with these huge acts in this little local Alaska publication. I feel like those are, have been digitized and they're PDF versions online. But so there's these, the scenes were really diverse and the, there's a lot of different stuff. And then, you know, then again, there's like the gospel music and the um, local country music and the, um, like Alaska Native language stuff and the, you know, the Athabascan fiddle music and the Wichin traditional music in that um there's there's it's all over the place and there's like smithsonian records of historic stuff and there's these 1950s anthropological works on the acculturation of like or like acculturation through the introduction of like musical instruments and um there's yeah this um very 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 diverse i mean there's even this children's record 
this guy Larry Beck, I think it's Larry Beck, who called himself the Bard of Alaska, and he put out all these sort of like Robert Service records and mm-hmm. different things. And he was involved in this 70s children's TV show called Mother Moose, where all the VHS is gone. There's like a Facebook group dedicated to it. They've got some old photos, but somebody recorded over all the old VHS tapes of the show. But there's still like little toys that they had made that they'd sell at shops around town. And there's this vinyl record they put out of the, these Mother Moose songs that has this, you know, the, the actual puppet of this like human size, six foot something Mother Moose, like this moose in this, <laughs> this like maternal sort of dress with like a, like this weird little hat, you know, like the old cartoony, like it's like a, basically like a sack on the head that's been cinched around the edges and kind of frills out. I don't know what that hat's called. Um, and then, you know, like the kind of billowy flowery dress with an apron. Okay. It's like a giant moose. I mean, you can find it. Just look for a cover of like the mother moose um, thing. But, um, and that stuff, these, this children's music is pretty wild too. Or this guy, Maeve Nutter, put out a seven inch from Valdez after the Exxon Valdez crash. Um, that's this sort of like humorous song with sound effects about, um, about the Exxon Valdez and all the proceeds go to, you know, cleaning up the oil spill and mm-hmm. yeah so it's really it's just it's as all over the place as anything is when you're listening to this stuff are you do you genuinely like a lot of it or is it kind of scratching that uh kind of creative slash like feeding your knowledge itch it's a bit of both like i said there's this thing where um the some of it's like I guess feeding knowledge that's a nice way of putting it the the like hoarding or um this like sort of completionist like you want to have all of it kind of like mentality like um Mm -hmm. it's like oh once you start like how do you create the bounds of the collection like what 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 when is it complete um there's that and that can be that could be a lot of it and then there is like there is stuff that comes up regularly that I am very interested uh, as music or like as artwork itself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but it, it's a little bit of both. I think it's, a, it's like anything else, right? So the, the art scene in Anchorage is very diverse. There's a lot of different types of artists. I mean, just in general, when you think of the word art, it encompasses like so many different things, right? Like in, a, in a very like, kind of 1950s to 70s, like what is art, right? Like mm-hmm. is, is a urinal art? Is a, anyway, art could be anything, right? And so uh, in that sense, like nobody's into like all of it, right? Nobody's like super excited about everything. We're kind of all into these different niches. Um, and in a, in a community like Anchorage, you go and see and you support all sorts of different things, but it's really every so often something that someone's doing strikes you on this, like this higher level um, where you really appreciate it and you really get excited about it, right? Like you don't have the same level of excitement for everything you come across, but you appreciate that all of it exists and that everybody's trying to contribute to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really interesting about places like Alaska where like, you know, when I was living in New York and London, you could, you could hang out with people, only people that were specifically interested in the, the niche <laughs> that you were, right? Like if I only wanted to like hang out with kids that were, super into risograph printed abstract like art comics you know mm-hmm. or i wanted to just look at artist books that were about like reconsidering what a book was 
formally or if I wanted to be into like droning noise music where, you know, where like live shows always happened at like sunrise or something, you know, like there was a scene where I could hang out with just people that were interested in that thing, Mm -hmm. Um, which you can't do that in a place like Anchorage. But I guess this is sort of a roundabout way of getting at like with this music, I'm not like inherently interested in all of it. Um, There's a lot of it that it's just like not a genre that I'm interested in or maybe like the sort of like lyricism if it's like songwriting, I, the, the approach of that artist is not something that like that speaks to me, like what they're singing about doesn't speak to me. Um, but they're, but the fact that they did it, I am interested in um, and that it contributes to this larger history I'm interested in. Um, and then the idea that it, it could have value to someone else in the future I'm interested in. Um, and then, yeah, occasionally there are these things like Joe Paul's music um, that I'm really excited about and that I do listen to a lot and that I'm that um, are um, artwork that on a more just like gut level, I'm like, yeah, this is the sort of art, this is the sort of music that I personally like, um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, so one of the things that we're thinking about um, trying to do in the next year, which is a project I'm really excited about, is trying to get some um, some musicians involved in this project um, that have experience with um, sort of like sound engineering, like editing software, stuff like that, mm-hmm. and having them get involved in the digitizing process, and if not the digitizing process, at least like listen to selections from the digitized work and start to pull samples out that could be used for loops or could be used to produce new content. Um, and I'm really interested in the idea of finding people that not only can help with that, but can help teach that process both to me and then also to other groups. Like we could have adult or youth, um, like teen workshops where we, where people teach this sort of um, music editing and how to make a sample and like little tricks of the trade to choose a good section and how to, you know, make the loop um, seamless and these different, you know, like even for me, how to identify a bar of music where the start and the stop of it is with mm-hmm. some of these old recordings is I find it to be really hard um, okay because it's not super defined. Um, yeah. Sometimes when it's just a guy with his guitar singing, you know, you're like, when he's just playing his guitar, he's, there's not a drum, there's not a bass. There's like, what? Where is the start and the stop of this? Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm not a, again, I'm not a musician. I come from this like from this like fan perspective. But um, but anyway, I think it'd be really cool to start making new content using the old content, um, so that it you know it's being archived, but it's also being kind of filtered into what's happening now. You know what's happening with the contemporary Alaskan music. Mm-hmm learning about and collecting all of this stuff out of fandom, do you think that gives you a different perspective that maybe a, somebody who's, who's part of these smaller communities or maybe even somebody who's more familiar with some of this music, some of this art, um, do you have a, maybe a different relationship with it? Yeah, I mean, I imagine that my relationship is different than um, some other people. I think some of that can be even like location based, though. I mean, your relationship with music, if you knew the people and you were a part of the scene that that music came out of, is going to be very different than if you were somebody that um, is finding it um, somewhere else or collecting it, you know, decades after it was recorded. Um, And 
and yeah, I think I, the fan part, like thinking about myself more as a fan, that has less to do with like how I appreciate or like what it is I take away from the music and more about like contextualizing how both I and other people perceive this project. Because I don't want to come into a space where other people have a great deal more knowledge than me and come in and be perceived as though I'm like, again, like an anthropologist or an ethnomusicologist or that, I'm, that I, I come with some sort of expertise or some sort of like book smarts or mm-hmm. um, that somehow elevates me. Um, I would rather them understand or people understand and I'd rather remind myself that what I'm doing is, is kind of like an amateur sort of like novice um, activity driven by like interest and excitement, not by like some sort of um, institutional mission or um, perceived like, you know, cause I find myself like even in this conversation falling into language that is um, where like, it's just like right on the edge of me starting to feel like I sound like a missionary or something. <laughs> and, I, and you know, and that's the opposite. Like I know, I know very much so that that's the opposite of what I am. Like um, you know, I'm not, I'm not like this necessary. I'm not this. People don't. They, I'm not needed. You know, like in that way. It's that's really arrogant to feel that way. And that's a that's a thing that people do when they come to like rural, like these like foreign communities, like Alaska Native villages are a great example of like people coming in thinking they know how to like to collect this or they know how to like teach this or mm-hmm. they know how to fix this or they or that they have this service that is like indispensable and mm-hmm. it's like that's not where I'm coming from I'm coming from a I'm doing this out of like an interest that comes out of like my being a, again a fan um, just being excited by the content and that I'm there to learn and that if I can provide a service that is useful in exchange for like all the information and all the stuff that I'm getting mm-hmm. um, then like that's that's kind of what I'm looking to do. So, um, so yeah. So I think that um, yeah, being part of a scene versus not being part of the scene that the music or the artwork comes out of definitely affects things. I think that there's an there's this musician and like producer that runs Surreal Studios in Anchorage named Kurt Riemann, and um, and he has an amazing he has an Alaska music collection that probably dwarfs mine, um, yeah, just multiple times over. Um, and his is very much out of being part of a scene, right? And mm. a large part of what's in his collection comes through the fact that he actually recorded and produced and sent the tapes off to be pressed to vinyl, like lots and lots of these records. He's done people's CDs. He has like an Alaska music show. He did. He was doing Alaska music radio show stuff for Out North Radio now for got to be a decade. So, you know, he's got an amazing archive. Um, amazing Alaska music collection, an amazing amount of knowledge as like a, a musician himself, as a sound engineer, as a producer, as a the manager of a recording studio that's been around for decades. You know, and there's this other guy that I met that has been running a record store that moved to Homer from Fairbanks and the stuff that he's come across through the stuff he partic- has participated in, in um, while he was in Fairbanks and there's like the music that he comes across in thrift stores or that comes came over his desk as a, um, record store um, owner is sort of a really specific and his collection is probably comparable to mine but very different in different ways yeah I like that mentality of how can I be of service yeah well and, and then in exchange you know and then in a selfish way right how can I do something that I can do easily and that I'm interested in doing that mm-hmm. that somebody else appreciates like right putting music online digitally and then when somebody asks just very much just sharing the files with them um, so that they can now put a Joe Paul 
song that they remember from when they were a kid on a YouTube video that they're making of them making like a gutak, you know, like mm-hmm. that's cool to me. Um, and it's like, I'm, I'm doing something simple for me that, that is a service that they appreciate. And then in exchange, I'm getting information. I'm being like, um, I'm being introduced to new music. I'm like, th- like the rewards are just like massive when it comes to the, like my interest in this, this local content. Well, Jimmy, that does it for all my questions. I want to thank you for spending time with me today. I had a blast. I love learning about Alaska history. And, you know, you provided a lot of stuff about music that I just had no clue about. (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks. This was fun, definitely. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, no, that seems like we've talked for a while here. So, um, yeah, that seems like it. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors.